Belonging is a core ingredient to creating a workplace where people care and try. I'll tell you about a specific strategy that can supercharge belonging where you work. Plus, we help a new boss who is nervous about documenting performance problems. It's all ahead now on Boss Better Now. You're listening to Boss Better Now. This show is sponsored by Joe Mall and Associates. Now here's your host, speaker and author, Joe Mall. Welcome back to the arena, Boss Heroes, the arena where you do your work, where you get your hands dirty, where you get a little beat up every once in a while, all in the service of helping people thrive at work. We are delighted, thrilled, over the moon to have you here, and we thank you for spending a few minutes out of your day with us. That voice you heard at the top of the show was none other than my fabulous co-host, professional coach Alyssa Mullet. Hello, my friend. Hello, hello, hello. I uh, I love, love the topic of belonging. Mm. Uh, I am so enamored and devoted to the work of Dr. Brene Brown right. on the topic of belonging. She has masterful pieces on that. Uh, I don't know if you've uh, had the opportunity to uh, look at or know about her newest book, yes, uh, Atlas, Atlas of, the, of Heart. the Heart. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's like a whole HBO special. I was going to ask if this was on your radar. Yes, that's going to be a big thing, I think. I don't have, of course, the streaming service that is necessary to watch (laughs) said thing. But a funny story uh, for Christmas, my BFF and I, Maria, uh, exchanged little gifts, you know, just little tokens of something we thought each other would like. And we opened them at the same time. And guess what it was? Oh, no. (laughs) Mutual copies of Atlas of (laughs) Art. <laughs> so we both got each other the same book. That's fantastic. Thought, you know, what better uh tribute to the fact that you know yourself and right? your BFF the best? That's <laughs> like the each other giant the exactly blinking thing. sign that says we are in the right place. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Affirming, affirm, affirm. And I think we actually talked, I think, on this show a while back about how interesting it was that Brene Brown did this Netflix special a couple years ago. And she was really the first sort of subject matter expert or thought leader around a uh, topic to get a Netflix special like you would give a comedian, but it wasn't a comedian. And that this kind of this format really was going to open up a lot of doors for other types of experts. And so now, what do you see? Now we see HBO saying, let's do this as a miniseries. Let's kind of create some buzz around it and, and uh, really dive in. And, and, you know, obviously they're leveraging uh, the, the penetration that she has had across so much of pop culture and, and media uh, because she has found such a really powerful and compelling way to talk about things that are – talk about subjects that are so relevant to so many of us. Um, I will also tell you this, my friend. I do have – an HBO Max subscription. And so it sounds like we need to set up like a watch party, right? Ah. With with Brene Brown and Alyssa and Joe and Nachos. <laughs> nachos. I'm in. What say you? 
That sounds yummy. I th- although I need to, I need uh, plenty of queso on the nachos. Absolutely. Oh, the, uh, this the, they go. It's peanut butter and jelly. It's nachos and queso. Okay. There is not one without the other in our okay. house. Okay. Good. 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 I feel like you um, don't I'm even glad know me. We can see eye to eye. <laughs> <laughs> And I, too, am passionate about our topic today around belonging, and there are so many angles to it. And obviously, one set of angles is around all of the work that Brene does around vulnerability, and and there's so much more work now than ever before being done around creating inclusive workplaces. Like all the DEI work that so many organizations are finally committing to are in service of creating psychological safety, and because we know that when people feel a sense of belonging when they are um, connected to a community at work, it, it can supercharge commitment. And, you know, we get all ma- so many incredible benefits from it. Um, I want to talk today about a specific device that a lot of organizations are using. And it, it's a newer-ish idea. I don't want to say that it's a new idea because in some places, uh, these kinds of ideas really started, I think, more than about 20 years ago. Um, but they have really caught on in recent years. And that is something uh, called employee resource groups or ERGs. And ERGs are employee-led groups uh, that are designed to make workplaces safer and more supportive for groups of employees who share a common characteristic or ethnicity or lifestyle circumstance or interest. Um, So, for example, in your organization, you might decide to support an employee resource resource group or an ERG for LGBTQIA plus employees. Uh, You may look at your organization and say, within our organization, we have a subset of people who are all 100% remote workers, and they have a unique set of challenges and and circumstances. And so we're going to create a remote worker ERG. Um, You may look and see, um, we have uh, employees who have disabilities. And so let's create an employees with disabilities ERG to make sure that we are um, creating uh, a... a, um, an open-ended dialogue with those folks about how we can create a workplace that allows them to thrive. Because when we have ERGs that are supported by leadership, they can improve work conditions, they can facilitate open conversations, uh, they can help develop leaders, and they can help bring frustrations to the surface quickly and safely from people in those groups without forcing people in those groups to necessarily uh, take the risks that sometimes people have to take in order to speak up. The groups can can help with those kinds of things. So, Alyssa, are you familiar at all with ERGs? And if so, uh, where and how have you seen them at work? And if not, what's your reaction? I I think in some semblance, uh, the concept has, has been around uh, for a while. Um, I think maybe back in my... Um, more defined corporate days, you know, when I was in the corporate structure myself, rather than, you know, supporting them through coaching as I am now, it was um, deemed like a committee, right? you know, right. Yeah. that kind of thing. You, you had your committee work. Yeah. Um, I, and I say that, and I almost want to, you know, like choke on it a little bit because yeah. uh, it committees, in my experience, lacked really any authority mm-hmm. to make real change. And so is the concept behind ERGs one in which 
that group of people holds some authority to actually not just recommend, yeah, but actually make change? Like, is there a differentiation there or? Well, it's going to depend on organization to organization and how much of a commitment the organization makes to that. I think where we see them being used most successfully, there absolutely is. Um, So I actually just finished interviewing um, a C-suite executive from a large software company uh, for the book. So I've talked a little bit about how I'm in the throes of writing book number three right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, which is like I've told people, it's like wrestling a bear to the ground with one arm tied behind your back. Writing a book is hard. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I did not end up in a fetal position anytime this week, weeping about oh, my yay. inability Wins. to get to move forward. So we're calling it a win. That's right. Um, but I ended up uh, interviewing this C-suite executive, and he talked with so much passion and enthusiasm about ERGs unprompted in his organization mm. and about the role they play in inclusion and belonging. And one of the things that he talked about was how important it is that they are employee-led but also organizationally driven. And, you know, what he shined a light on for me and what I'm sort of passing on to everybody listening is that perhaps the two most important conditions for an ERG to work is that they are given time and money. They are supported by the organization by having a line of communication to the C-suite. That C-suite devotes time to interact with this group, to get reports from this group, to collaborate from this group. Um, Employees are given time to uh, participate, to do the project work, to to lead the initiatives that may come out of these groups. Um, And they are given money. So in this software organization, and I'm not naming them yet because the book hasn't come out, um, Mm -hmm. but in this organization, they give a budget to their employee resource groups. And I'll tell you about the the employee resource groups that are present in this company so we have some more context for this. Uh, in this organization, uh, they have five employee resource groups. They have an LGBTQ group. They have a women in tech group. Uh, they have a families ERG group uh, to, to focus on people who are parenting. Um, they have a neurodiverse employees group. And then they have an employee resource group for people of color. And each group is employee-led. Each group has a budget provided by the organization. uh, And each group drives initiatives that are publicly shared with the organization. And so I can give you a few more examples of some ways in which these groups are being used in in these kinds of organizations. Um, But I think your point is spot on, Alyssa. There are certainly places where where we, we invite employees to drive these kinds of initiatives, but then they aren't given those assets of time and money, and they aren't given that broad-based public support, and they don't have a line of communication, and so they're robbed of the very authority that you described. Well, and it also speaks to without the commitment of time and money, we're talking about tokenism Yes, in each of these capacities, right? Oh, well, I can say it in name, Mm -hmm. and I support these things, and I support these people, but not with actual time or money. That's right. Right? So um, one of the things I'm interested, though, is, is it, uh, are these groups where folks can self-select into those communities, into those groups? Or is it like you're tapping people on the shoulder to say, hey, you want to join this? Or, Or is it maybe a little bit of both? Like how do organizations logistically... I mean, 
I think you have to be kind of careful, like, right. to Absolutely. say, you want to be part of this neurodivergent group right. over here? Right. Like, yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Like, hey, <laughs> that, you, I mean, you, might... you look black. Maybe you should yeah, think right. about our people of color ERG. That's not a conversation we want to get into like that. But um, so I, I think self-selection is a big part of it, but I think there has to be a lot of um, commitment to to awareness of the groups and not just that they exist, but what they do and what is gained. And uh, And it's not even just about driving systems or processes uh, or projects across the organization, that it is about community, that it is about uh-huh. belonging. It is about accessing a safe place and being able to interact more directly with people who know and understand what it means to be you know, X, to be in that lifestyle circumstance or to have that shared interest mm-hmm. or that, that, that common ethnicity. Um, so one of the things that we know organizations are doing are um, making ERGs a part of employee orientation and, you know, mm-hmm. having those groups come and maybe give presentations or talk about what those groups are doing in the organization and how to access those groups. Um, I know organizations who use ERGs as part of hiring. So the software company that I interviewed says that as part of their uh, interview process for any candidate, mm-hmm. they will give them access to somebody from any ERG to interview. So if you are a woman in tech or you're a person of color and you want to interview with this organization for a job, this company says, we're going to interview the people who are going to supervise you or our selection committee. But over here, we have these five ERGs. And if you'd like, we will set up a contact point so you can have a confidential conversation with anybody from that group. As a way to maybe ask some tougher questions about what it's really like to work here and what are we good at and what are we striving to get better at? Wow, that's that would be a pretty powerful place to put right. recruits and your and your own, you know, organization. Like you're truly building that's built in commitment. Yes. You know, from the onset. Like here's what you're getting. You're getting the whole enchilada, and this is real talk. Another opportunity. Yes. For a process where generally breeds in authenticity, in in <laughs> authentic interactions. How about I say that? In Easy for us to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, that a opening into real belonging and community exists in a dialogue um, that could uh bring forth a little bit more of authenticity into that recruitment process. I think the other thing that would be important um, to look at in these ERG groups is if we're truly committing as an organization to community and belonging as a part of this, these values for the ERGs, then it should incorporate folks across the employment spectrum, like not just staff, but also, you know, what if, if you're in healthcare, faculty and, yeah. you know, uh, clinicians and things like that. And then administrators and C-suite, you know, so it, in order to truly be representative and feel like it is important mm-hmm. and it is a, an imperative part of the community that we belong to here in our workplace, I think it has to encapsulate every level of management within the organization. I completely agree. And not only that, I would argue that within the ERG, you have to work to do away with the hierarchy that exists on the org chart, 
right? Mm. So that if, if in the org chart, that faculty member sits way up high and has a bunch of sway and influence, and I'm, you know, John Q administrative assistant a little bit farther down, but in the ERG, I'm in a leadership role. I think we have to do the work necessary to help people rethink some of those power structures, especially within those Ooh. communities, in order for them to really work. Interesting. Yeah, that's that would be a a great dynamic to explore as 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 the as part of the work of the ERG is to right. you know right sizing those power dynamics within that community. Right. And there um, might even be a, a need in some places to prevent people who have a lot of power and influence because of the nature of their role or their title from holding formal leadership roles within the ERG. Of course, they can mm. be members. But if you really want this to be employee driven, employee led, you may have to set some boundaries around who is allowed to hold those power positions in the ERG. Interesting. Interesting. I, I know that, and you'll, I think you'll really appreciate this element, that that ERGs can in a, obviously drive belonging, but they can be an accountability mechanism for the organization, too. A gentleman I was interviewing was talking about the women in tech group in his organization, mm -hmm. and he talked about how they hold the organization accountable for gender diversity in hiring. He, he told me about how um, the uh, Human Resources Department every month – provides that ERG with data around how many women were in the final discussions for any director's level role, how many women they hire compared to men, and they have an ongoing conversation with the C-suite about that. The other thing that ERGs can do is play a role in um, education across the organization. Um, we He talked about how for their uh, LGBTQ ERG, they had four employees volunteer to do a company webinar about their coming out experience, about how they identify, about why pronouns matter. Um, and he's, he said, we're a company that has a lot of white males in the Eastern Bloc of Europe. And so this is something mm -hmm. that they need to hear because there's bias out there. And when these people are listening, it helps them think differently. Uh, and so mm -hmm. he said that there's been a really neat payoff for us in terms of education. But at the same time, the members of these ERGs are saying, you know, I've never worked at a place where I felt more comfortable talking about who I am and talking about these kinds of subjects. And so from an education mm -hmm. perspective, uh, there's a real benefit as well. Interesting. This is – it's fascinating to me. I think they could be um, – a really great resource in a lot of different ways. And, and certainly I can see how it could absolutely breed community and belonging in the workplace. Absolutely. And if nothing else, you know, these kinds of groups can impact, can positively impact morale. Um, you know, he, he was telling me about the families group and he said, uh, as the year was winding down, the family's ERG had a little bit of money left in their budget at the end of the year. And so they sent a $50 DoorDash credit to everybody in the ERG. And they said, hey, the holidays can be stressful, so don't worry about cooking tonight. And he said, you know, that's just another little thing that someone gets at work and thinks, wow, like, look what they do here in this organization. Mm -hmm. And those kinds of little things can go a long way to retaining talent and making people feel special. Agreed. Absolutely. Well, folks, if you are interested in uh, driving these kinds of initiatives in your organization, uh, do some Google work here. You can do some searching around employee resource groups in terms of how to get started, sort of um, right and wrong ways to, to do these kinds of things. And I think some of the conditions that we just described around 
C-suite support, but employee-driven around assets like time and money, uh, about the ability for these organizations to be an accountability mechanism and an education mechanism, as well as a morale and belonging mechanism, um, should give you a, a jump start on doing something like this where you work, uh, if it's something that you want to pursue. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think, friends. You can uh, email the show, uh, not only to give us feedback, but also to email your questions. We want to invite you to email your question to our show to be answered on the air. If you have a situation or an ongoing struggle as a leader, we want to hear from you. You can send your question and your feedback to bossbetternow at gmail.com. We arrive now once again to our camaraderie question of the week. Bosses build camaraderie on teams by making it easier for people to find things in common with each other. You know, like employee resource groups. Every week we give you a question here that you can use at meetings to facilitate connection and build camaraderie. Our question this week, Alyssa, this is a question I get asked a lot. I imagine you get might get asked it from time to time as a professional coach. What advice would you give someone who wants to pursue a career like yours. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I think about the things that have served me most in the capacity of a coach now, and I feel like there is no substitute for experience in terms of being in a leadership role and a management role, being part of the lowest level of any ladder on the ground floor, yeah. anywhere, uh, working your way up, um, being able to have a full depth and breadth of experience um, in a, you know, my, the industries that I have served in hospitality, so service industry orientation. There is no job on the planet that does not benefit from when you work in the service industry, period, right. end of story. Right. Okay. Um, so I would even say like back to my 15-year-old self, you know, waitressing and scrubbing toilets mm -hmm. absolutely prepared me to be a coach today. Yeah. You didn't waitress and like scrub toilets. You didn't scrub toilets between the rate waitressing, did you? That wasn't happening like no, on the same I shift, I hope. Yeah, it was, okay. it was, it Woo. wasn't. And it was I got a little nervous there. And then jobs. I was going to ask the name of the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> two different jobs. Right. <laughs> Luckily. I got you. <laughs> but uh, experience, 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 just whatever it is, be open to it. Find meaning and opportunity to learn because I think that that's the essence of my line of of professional work now, which is learning and curiosity. Yeah, yeah. Experience breeds both of those. And so if I am someone who wants to become a professional coach, and, and sadly, you and I both know this, there are um, any number of people out there right now who throw up a website you know, and say, Absolutely. I'm a coach. Uh, and they have That's no right. formal training. They don't understand what coaching is and what it isn't. Uh, and so yeah. if I wanted to become an actual credentialed coach, 
Alyssa. Yeah. And you actually, need to go to a, an accredited program. Right. So right. I went to Duquesne University for an accreditation uh, program through them for my professional coaching. Um, there is an actual federation, the yep. International Coaching Federation. It makes me want to do the Spock hands, you know, <laughs> live long and prosper. Um, this is a federation uh, in which you can get further credentialed and yeah. get master coach levels. And I have uh, colleagues that have done so. For me, I chose to keep my um, my credentials to the the baseline, if you will, yeah. uh, in the coaching realm, because I my experience and my education uh, and my other credentials were all in human resources. Right. And so that's the kind of the foundational things you have to look at um, the quintessential uh, credentials right. that are looked to or espoused in those people uh, who you look to in that industry. Because it's a signal to, to people they, who understand that that this person has done the work and they understand the ethics and they understand the models and the processes in order to be reputable. Exactly. Exactly. It's why I got my CSP, my Certified Speaking Professional. It's a it's an indicator that this is someone who has been in the business, is experienced, has uh, passed several different layers of checks around ethics and enterprise mm -hmm. and expertise and other words that start with E. And you know that <laughs> they're not just somebody who decided yesterday to start doing this. You know, um, right. so if you ever see Alyssa online and you see the letters PC behind her name. It's not because she's politically correct. Because <laughs> I am not. I mean, she is. But, I mean, okay, yeah. And, and, and she's not, and that's why we love her. But it means PC stands for? Professional coach. Yep. And then I also coach. have SHRM-CP, which is SHRM, Society of Human Resources Management Certified Professional yep. in the HR field. <laughs> Yep. It means she's really smart. All right. That's good advice. So if you want to become a professional coach, you got to get curious, you got to get experience, and you got to get credentialed. I love it. Good advice, my friend. Okay. Now give us the walkthrough on the speaking, training, how all of the things. Yes. So I'm going to keep this short and simple because um, I get asked this a lot, right? I do a lot of um, keynoting uh, at conferences and if you're sitting in the audience, this can look like a really glamorous thing, right? Especially at bigger conferences. It's like, please welcome speaker, author, and recovering HR professional, Joe Moll, right? And I come out and I do my thing, which is usually a mix of sharing some expertise, telling some entertaining stories, making people laugh. And then afterwards, like you get to go out in the lobby and people want to meet you and you get to sign books and you get a little, you know, you sometimes get a little rock star treatment, right? And then you find out like, wow, we paid that guy how much? And so it can seem like a really glamorous, special thing, and I'm not going to lie, most of the time it is. Uh, but it's also something that you have to climb a ladder around, and you have to start small. My, my first paid speaking gig was nine years ago for $200. Uh, in the lobby of <laughs> in the lobby of a building that was being renovated and so it was like around drywall and ladders um, for the Pittsburgh young professionals group here uh, in Western Pennsylvania um, and so when people come up to me and this happens a lot and they say how do I do what you do I want to be a speaker my first and only piece of advice is simply you need to get involved in the National Speakers Association so NSA uh, not the NSA who listens 
This is the NSA who speaks. <laughs> Uh, the National Speakers Association is the professional trade association here in the U.S. for professional speakers. And um, I am feeding my family right now because what I have learned through NSA, uh, from the generosity of that community and from people who have really built incredible businesses, um, and with NSA, you, you learn craft, you learn how to run a speaking business, you learn how to build and grow an audience, um, and you also meet some of the smartest and loveliest human beings you ever will meet. And so I tell folks all the time, you can, if you have a local chapter, get involved at your local chapter level. If you don't have a local chapter, consider uh, one of the online memberships that we have in NSA and, you know, get involved and just start connecting and learning. Fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. I, I have to shout out the website in case anybody wants to check it out. It's nsaspeaker.org. If anybody wants to go take a look. And so, yeah, if you come up to me after a keynote and you say, how do I do what you do? I'm going to say, check out NSA. That's the answer. <laughs> and that's the camaraderie question of the week. All right, Alyssa, before we get to mail time, I have some exciting news. We have set the date for our spring Boss Better Virtual Summit. Cool. And we finalized the program. Yay. And so we're, this is our save the date. So podcast listeners, save the date. Our spring Boss Better Virtual Summit is going to be on Tuesday, June 7th, 2022. Now, I'm not going to tell you who the speakers are, and I'm not going to tell you yet how to get tickets because the website is still being finalized. What I will tell you is that two weeks from now, on this show, we are going to announce the lineup, and we are going to give our podcast listeners a deep discount code to attend that they can't get anywhere else. And so we've got four amazing, brilliant, dynamic speakers who are all coming to teach and inspire and recharge boss heroes from all over the country. Uh, I think, Alyssa, when people hear about who and hear about the topics, they're going to say, OMG, that's a BFD. LFG, I don't want FOMO. After all, YOLO, sign me up right now because it's too legit to quit. That's what they're going to say. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't even respond to that. <laughs> Some people are Googling what those letters mean right now. Um but, but save the date, friends. Um, and the good news is this is not a virtual event where you log on in the morning and you have to sit at your Zoom all day long. It's chunked out in these tiny little like 45-minute sessions that you can get into and experience virtually. And they're they're so fantastic. And they're going to supercharge you in some really special ways. And then you take a break. And then you come back a little later. And then you do another one. And you come back a little bit later. And there's fun and prizes. And it's, it's a virtual event like you've probably never experienced. And so in two weeks, we're going to reveal the lineup and the discount code exclusively for listeners of this show. Virtual high five. Yay. Exciting. All right. We are now going to do mail time. Um, I owe our writer in, our, our question asker, an apology because she sent us this question months ago. And through something that was entirely my fault. It got buried 
in our queue of questions. And so I'm I'm just now getting to it. We should have gotten it to it months ago. And so Carly, I sincerely apologize. I hope you haven't bailed out on our show. Um, Carly <laughs> sent us this question. Joe and Alyssa, I am a newly promoted supervisor and I just had to perform my first write-up for one of my employees. I was very nervous going into this conversation. And it went well, but do you have any advice for first-time managers and how to handle disciplinary actions? Thanks, Carly. P.S. Love the show and have recommended it to all of the managers at my job. That's very nice of you to say, Carly. Thank you. Um, And I think we can tell Carly right out of the gate that you are not alone, Carly. This is a very, very common, commonly experienced uh, experience. Absolutely. And I think it's true even for seasoned uh, supervisors and leaders, right? At any capacity, if if giving disciplinary action or having uh, this level of conflict becomes ease and run of the mill for you, uh, you probably need to find a new job. Yes. Because this is not it. <laughs> right. You're, you're doing more harm. Um, I think the, one of the things that I would start off by on trying to have the leader do is understand for themselves, what does going well, like Carly referenced yeah. here, she had the conversation and it went well. What does going well mean? Like, what are our true goals and expectations of ourselves and of that person in receiving this information? We've talked plenty of times um, on the show about giving people the opportunity to be real and receive information and giving them grace and not having these expectations of them instantaneously agreeing with what you're, you're saying, um, letting them have some anger, some hurt, some frustration, uh, and being able to, um, process, you know, in real time with our reptilian brains, (laughs) um, the information that you're giving to them while most of the time, it's not new information. Again, it should never be new information to this individual right. once we're at this level of conversation and it's being recorded and it's going in. If, if it's a write up specifically, if we're documenting formally as part of a corrective action process. Yeah. Do usually don't do that the first time. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I think that the large majority of what we have to craft in our mind as outcomes that we will deem, quote, successful mm-hmm. has to revolve around how we, as the leader, supervisor, manager, conduct ourselves Yes, in that space, not how they react. Because if they walk, if you, you say, my only goal is for them to not walk out of this room crying, <laughs> you got the wrong goal. zero <laughs> zero, zero control of that. Right. Um, so I think I would structure my uh, terms of success and my framework around um, how I want to conduct myself in terms of what is the end result of how what I want to communicate, how I want to communicate it, and how I want to feel 
in terms of supporting myself at the end of this interaction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I completely agree with all of that. We have only so much control over how other people respond to us. What what you want to be clear about are what your ends are with this conversation. What 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 needs to be the the situation when this is over, which is that that other person needs to be clear about what is problematic and what happens next if change doesn't occur. Yep. At the same time, you also want them to feel supported. Um, you want them to understand that this is not personal. Uh, this is a performance issue. And so we've done a lot on this show around how to prepare for those conversations and and how to think about the order of that conversation and some scripts for that conversation. So I'm not going to get too much into that. But Carly, you know, bounce back and forth through some of the episodes that we've recorded around feedback. And I think there's some stuff in there to help you with that. Um, what I want to mention is a little bit about mindset. And some of that goes to what Alyssa just talked about. I think the first thing we have to remember is the nerves we have ahead of time are usually worst case scenario, and that conversation never goes as badly as we think it's going to. Um, and if it does, you know, quote unquote, go bad, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to always know what to say. Sometimes you just have to repeat the core tenets of the conversation, which is, hey, I care about you. I want you to be successful, but this has to change. And we need to put our heads together to figure out how to do it. As far as the documentation piece of this goes, um, that's an accountability mechanism. And I know how hard it is to get into those conversations and to not want people to uh, to feel hurt and to not want people to feel unsupported and for us as managers to want to be liked. Um, but also as a leader, you are the accountability mechanism. And if somebody is being written up, formally documented, that is not something you are doing to them, that is something that they have done to themselves. It is the next step in a process that has have that has to occur because they have not made the necessary changes that have been reviewed with them at least once already, if you think about a, t- a typical corrective action model. Um, I, I think the other thing to remember here, Carly, is that experience is a wonderful teacher. It's, you know, Alyssa talked about this in around coaching that, you know, showing up and being curious and trying to understand why people are showing up in the way that they are um, will go a long way to shape those conversations. But also the experience of just being nervous and having a feedback conversation and having to do the documentation and present it to them, it's not going to numb you to it, but it's going to teach you how to not get too derailed by the discomfort of it because it will always be uncomfortable. Yeah, um, for sure. When I was a newer manager, Alyssa, I remember always wanting at the end of any uncomfortable feedback conversation to be like, are we good? Like, are, are you and I okay? Is there anything like that's being left unsaid? And I, I recognize now how important it was to me to put everything in this tidy emotional box that we could set up on the shelf and that we, it wouldn't be weird later. Right. In terms of that conversation. And what I finally learned and understood is sometimes people aren't going to like you when they leave the room um, because it feels icky to be told you're not perfect. Um, You got to be comfortable with people not always agreeing with you uh, or feeling like you're treating them, quote unquote, fairly. Sometimes accountability is experienced by others in those ways. Uh, I think if you're explicit with your intent and you're caring and you bring clarity around what needs to change, um, then you've you've met your goals uh, and held that person accountable without getting wishy-washy about it. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, Carly, I hope that's helpful. Um, like I said, we've got a, a couple other episodes uh, in the history here of the show that uh, you can go back and check out uh, as well. Thank you for the question. And once again, everyone, if you have a question you want to ask us, you can shoot us an email at bossbetternow at gmail.com. And finally, today, reviews are really important to podcasts. So if you like our show, we'd really appreciate it if you take a moment right now to leave us a review. If you're watching on video, just leave a comment in the box below the episode. If you're listening in a podcast app, just Look around for a link that says write a review. Uh, several of the platforms that we are on, including Apple, give you that option. So thank you for listening and take care of yourselves out there, folks. This show is sponsored by Joe Mall and Associates. Remember, commitment comes from better bosses. Visit joemall.com today.